Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, with a message titled, Holding Fast and Drawing Near. So turning your Bibles to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have found that much success in life is a matter of perseverance. Just keep going. Don't quit. When you get knocked down, get up again. Don't roll into a ball somewhere and whimper for the rest of your life. Keep fighting. The world is filled with people who are gifted but don't accomplish a great deal simply because they have not learned to keep going, especially when things get hard. And furthermore, the world is filled with moderately gifted people who just never quit and they were wildly successful. It's true in much of life. Very few things in life come to us without a great deal of determination, persistence, and a resolution to keep going. Of course, we have to learn from our mistakes and make adjustments and approach matters differently, but the matter of toughness is a great deal of what makes for success. Now, this isn't a speech about how to achieve great things in your life. I've always felt that I'd like to do one of those speeches just once, but this is not it. But I want to point out that in some ways the journey to heaven is not unlike the struggle we face in all other matters of life. Obstacles are placed in the way. There are hurdles to overcome and mountains to climb. A great sacrifice will need to be made. Now, some might rightly object to what I've just said. You know, they'll say, our salvation was purchased by the effort of our Savior Jesus and not by our own. We're recipients of grace, not earning our way to heaven by hard efforts. And look, that's true. I don't deny it. But remember that Paul told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and 2 Peter 1.5 tells us to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort. Richard Phillips relates the following incident. He says, a young Christian woman once told me how a colleague at work had belittled her Christian faith as an escape from the difficulties of real life. And here's what she said, an escape? You try to live as a Christian, you try to wage war against the desires of the flesh, and you try to live as an alien in a strange land, and then you come and tell me Christianity is the easy way. Indeed, that's right. Now listen to how Luke describes Paul's preaching in Acts 14, 21 to 22. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Things are going to be a lot harder than they had imagined. And by the way, I'm amazed at how seldom we tell people these things. There are many troubles and sufferings and pain that we must endure in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's the point we've been making in this study of Hebrews. Some of them thought that they wanted to leave the Christian faith because of the difficulties of persecution. But of course, persecution was to be expected. Did they think that once they came to Christ that the world would suddenly be their friend? Is that what you think? And if you do, you may soon give up when you find that it's not so. Now we come today at our last section of our study in the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews. So let's read our text. It's Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now our text begins with the word, since then we have a great high priest. See, already in this book, the high priestly ministry of Jesus has been mentioned. You know, in chapter 1, verse 3, we are told that Jesus had made purification for our sins. That's a high priestly ministry. He cleanses the worshiper. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, we were told that he's a merciful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of his people. And that means, as a high priest, he removes the righteous anger of God for our sins. Jesus, our high priest, has now cleansed us and presented us before the Father. Of course, as one continues the study of Hebrews, the high priestly ministry of Jesus is going to predominate a number of chapters, specifically chapter 7, 8, and 9. And so for Christians, we have a great high priest. And notice Jesus isn't simply called our high priest. He's called our great high priest. That is, he is, on the one hand, very much like the Jewish high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple and offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people. But Jesus is more than that. The Old Testament high priest was only permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple once every year. And then, but for a brief moment, he could stand in the presence of God. And that was all he was permitted. And then he would retreat and then he would enter again about the same time next year. But Jesus, in contrast, says our passage, has gone through the heavens. That is, rather than standing in an earthly temple, he stands in the heavens. Later on in Hebrews 9.24, we read that Jesus did not enter into holy places that are made with human hands, but he's entered into heaven itself, that is, into the throne room of the Father, and he appears there on our behalf. And so since Jesus offered up a perfect, once-for-all sacrifice that eternally is accepted by the Father and never needs to be repeated, we have not just a high priest, but we have a great high priest, a perfect high priest who has provided a way for us into the Father's presence. And since he did that, says our passage, let us hold fast our confession. Another translation has said, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, or let us not let go of that which we have. And so what is it that we have? Well, we read that we are to hold on to our confession, or other translations, the faith we profess. Here we get a sense that the writer of Hebrews is taking for granted that all Christians have a common confession. I mean, depending on the church you attend today, you might have a practice of repeating one of the great Christian creeds of the past, like, for instance, the Apostles' Creed. You know, it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended unto death. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead, and so forth. It goes on. Now, this confession was not put together by the apostles. It was actually created later, but it was used as an easy teaching tool to summarize the teachings of the New Testament in an easy way that could be memorized and then brought to mind when you needed it. Now, is that what the writer of Hebrews is referring to? Did the early church have a confession that summarized their faith? Now, we don't know. Indeed, we don't have a record of that kind of a thing. But but we do know that on several occasions, the New Testament uses the phrase, the faith, a noun with a definite article, the faith. 
Jude does that in Jude verse 3 when he tells his listeners that they're to contend for the faith, and then he defines the faith. It's the faith, he says, that's once for all been delivered to the saints. That is, there's understood to be a corpus of Christian teaching and doctrine that all Christians held to and affirm. And we get that same idea from 1 Timothy 6 verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The idea that there's a deposit, that's key. Something has been deposited in the bank of the Christian church, and that deposit are the historic truths and doctrines given to us by the apostles. Our task is to make sure that deposit doesn't suffer from theft, people taking from it. You know, one ancient Christian teacher said, guard the deposit, not that which was invented by thee, but that which was entrusted to thee. Guard the deposit. And so I tend toward thinking that the confession that Hebrews speaks about here, or the faith that we profess, is the common Christian confession given to all those who hold to the one truth. And notice how this goes. Since you have a high priest who has forgiven your sins and presented you without blemish before God, then you must hold firmly to that one true faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Don't you let it go. And that's the drama of the entire book of Hebrews. It turns out that it was harder to guard the deposit or to hold the confession than they had imagined. To confess, I believe in Jesus, crucified for my sins, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, the one before every human being will one day have to give an account. That confession is not something that's absent-mindedly repeated every Sunday or even ignored in favor of pop psychology preaching. Indeed, the confession must never be forgotten. Holding the confession ends up being harder than these Hebrew Christians ever imagined. Think of how it was at first. Glorious news. Christ is our long-awaited Messiah, the eternal Son of God, who's cleansed us from our sins and is coming back for us. Such great news. But now, the great news demanded more sacrifice and suffering than they had ever imagined. Oh my, what's to be done? The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. It's our hope that each of the elements of discipleship explored will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, Visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. It takes courage to hold on to our confession. It takes a willingness to pay the price. Early Christians were expected to look at the program of persecution that sometimes came even from the emperor himself. 
and to continue to confess that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. And that often at the cost of their own lives, they confessed that they believed in the resurrection of Jesus and that they would rise together with him. They confessed that they did not belong to this world, but that they belonged to the one who made them, redeemed them, and prepared for them an eternal home. The future was theirs, and it didn't belong to Rome after all. But how do they have the courage as well as the determination to carry on with this when the world hated them? And the answer is found in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the great high priest who cleansed us from our sins and has allowed us to approach the throne of God also knows how weak we are, doesn't he? And given that Jesus was without sin, and we are not like him in that regard, so we might think that he might despise us. After all, he was tempted as we are, and he prevailed. And just so that we're clear, the Bible does not present Jesus as prevailing because he's God, but rather he prevailed as man. That is, we can say that he was tempted in every respect as we are. As man, Jesus knew the temptation to sin sexually. He knew the power of the temptation to lust. He also knew the power of bearing false witness in order to appear more exceptional. He knew the power of unrighteous anger, and he fought all of those temptations. Well, I could go on and on, but you know the point I'm making. He felt the temptation as man, and as man, he was required to lean fully on his heavenly Father, spending much time in prayer, crying out to God. You know, in the very next chapter, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, listen to what it says, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I leave it to later studies to talk about, you know, Jesus' prayer of salvation from death. But notice here that when Jesus was praying, when he was supplicating God, that is, when he was asking, making his request before the Father, calling on the Father to work on his behalf and help him, that these prayers were done with loud cries and tears. We get a sense of the passion that he had in praying, loud cries and tears. And given that this was Jesus' experience, especially when he sought the Father's help in the temptations that we face, We might think that Jesus would not be sympathetic with our weaknesses. I mean, after all, he, according to our text, never sinned, not once. And we, in contrast, his followers, the people that our high priest has cleansed and redeemed, we have sinned, not just once, but many times. So how is it that Jesus would not despise our weakness, given that he knows what it's like to prevail? And the answer is right here in this text. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That is, he knows how crushing it is. He knows the weight of temptation. He also knows the human desire is to be safe. And that's a very much a part of our temptation. He knows that it would be so easy to abandon the gospel just to save one's own life. And he also knows that the desire to be accepted by the wider culture and not to be seen as an enemy and a pariah of the state, that temptation is huge. And Jesus is not smug. Rather, he says, I know how difficult this is. I felt those difficulties. If you're going to hold fast to your faith, you'll have to come to terms with just how weak you are. Now, before we move on, I need to deal with the sinlessness of Jesus, since that is a part of this text. 
I've seen now numerous studies that show that many, even among supposed evangelicals, have indicated that they believe that Jesus must have sinned. So several responses come to mind. First, if Jesus had sinned, he could not be our Passover lamb, our great high priest, without spot or blemish. That is, his sacrifice on the cross could not have cleansed us from our sin, for he would have then simply died as a sinner like everyone else. Second, to believe that Jesus sinned is disrespectful to him at best, and it's blasphemous toward him at worst. For Jesus to have prevailed after such a battle with sin, and then we, in our sinful judgment of him, say, no, no, he sinned just like us. No, no. That's disrespectful. It's blasphemous. Thirdly, Obviously, to argue that Jesus sinned is to say that the Bible's own testimony is untrue, is to call Scripture untrustworthy. And so the confession of our faith has to include the confession that the Son of God became fully man and experienced our humanity even as we do, but with one exception. He struggled with temptation as we did, but he never, not once, ever succumbed to the solicitation to sin. He prevailed where we failed. That's our hope. It's part of the good and saving news. So let's get back to our text. Hold fast to your confession, and then we come to the second command. The first one in verse 14, hold fast the confession. Now the second, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near to God. See, on the one hand, we have the theology for it. Jesus is our great high priest. He has cleansed us by his own blood. He is an acceptable sacrifice before the Father. And even when we sin, we confess our sins and we know that he not only forgives, but he also sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so all the theology is there to tell us that we have access to God the Father in prayer. The veil in the temple has been torn. We are told not just that we are invited into the Father's presence, but we are also told not to come with uncertainty, rather to come with confidence. The confidence isn't in ourselves. Of course it isn't. If it were, we wouldn't be accepted. The confidence is in Christ, our high priest. We're confident that the sacrifice he offered to the Father is acceptable before the Father. We're confident that his cleansing power is effective so that we are indeed cleansed as we stand before God. So let me say it again. We are confident in Christ, not in ourselves. So that's the truth. That's the theology. That's the confession we have. But having said that, we still have not yet come to the command. It's one thing to hold these truths. It's quite another thing to come. Let us draw near, says Hebrews. We might hear the author saying, don't neglect to make use of that which Christ has given you. What if you're glad that the door to the Father has been opened, but you never come? What if you're never like the Son? with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save you from death? What if in the face of persecution of Caesar and the fact that your employer might fire you or the local magistrate might imprison you, and with all of that, you never approach the throne of God? Let us then with confidence draw near, says Hebrews. James 4.8 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And that's a promise. Approach God. Do it in the confidence that your high priest gives you, but do it. Go to him in prayer and bring your requests. And then the text isn't yet done. There are, in fact, two promises that come when we draw near to God. Here's the first, that we may receive mercy. Define mercy. Mercy is compassion and forgiveness given by one person to another when it's within the power and in the ethical and moral right of that one person to punish the other. 
So imagine a courtroom scene. The defendant is guilty, and then the judge is within his rights and within his power to punish the defendant. No one condemns the judge for doing that which is ethical and just. We expect judges to condemn the guilty. That's their job. But mercy is to do what's not expected, and more importantly, it's that which is not deserved. Mercy absolves the guilty, but it does more. It releases the guilty from that which they deserve. Imagine that. If you approach God, which, remember, has been opened up to you by Christ, you'll find that God's response to you is mercy. You may have gotten many things wrong, but there is more weakness and sin than you can imagine. But you're going to find, as Luther put it, there is before the throne the smile of God, mercy. Second promise is grace. If mercy is withholding the punishment you deserve, grace is giving you a blessing that you also don't deserve. On the one hand, mercy withholds punishment, but grace adds the blessing. God is interested in bringing favor, goodness, and long-term eternal blessing on those whom Christ has cleansed. And then one more thing. Let us draw near, now go to the end of that text, in the time of need. Let's go to God when we're desperate, when we're afraid, when the cost of holding our confession is far greater than we can bear. And so let's go back to where we began. The journey to heaven really is more difficult than we had imagined. However, the power that comes from the God who loves us is greater than we had ever imagined as well. Revelation 2 verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hold fast, draw near, be victorious. Thanks again, John. And let me ask you this last question about this series. Is there merit to reminding ourselves what we truly believe about the gospel by routinely reading something like the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed? Thank you for asking the question, Ben. Yes, I, you know, of course, I mentioned that in the text. And, you know, I go to a church where we do do that, and I find it extremely helpful to my own soul. It reminds me regularly. Um, I don't know that we're commanded to do that, but I think it's greatly helpful if we do. And so I would commend it to local churches as they're thinking about their worship service to have a time when people can remind themselves of the center of the faith, what it is that they all hold in common, and then what it is that they would fight and die for. This is a great reminder, and it tells us to hold fast our confession to the end. Thanks, John. And join us again next week as we continue our study of God's Word right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Great missions require great partnerships. When we join forces, we can carry the gospel of Jesus so much further than anybody could alone. This month, we're thrilled to share that Back to the Bible Canada is introducing a renewed monthly partner program now called Companions for the Gospel. Monthly partners play a key role in this ministry. They provide a reliable, consistent source of funds that helps sustain current and future gospel-centered initiatives. We want to encourage you to become a part of this essential group of partners. There are a few benefits to becoming a companion of the gospel, but even more important is the impact your partnership will make in sharing the truth of God's Word. To find out more, to sign up, or to give a one-time gift, 
Visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.